Chapter Seven of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Mister Marmaduke Coffin. The days went and went, and Jim did not leave Paris. He began to feel as if he should never care to leave Paris so long as the existing conditions endured. Yet his life was, in a certain sense, monotonous. He spent all his spare time with the Moorfields, and consequently with Clelia Vine. Perhaps it would be putting it better to say that he spent with them all the time that they could spare to him. They were enjoying Paris until the weather should begin to get a little too cold for Mrs. Moorfield, and while there was yet a chance of a fairly warm journey to whatever place they had settled to winter in. As yet they put off any definite plans on that subject. When the time came they could always settle quickly, Mrs. Moorfield said. So they lingered, and Jim Conrad lingered too. He was greatly interested in Miss Vine's curious way of life. She was an English girl born and brought up on the continent. Her father was an Englishman, but he had spent the greater part of his working lifetime as a physician for English and American patients along the shores of the Riviera in winter and spring, and while the summer heat kept foreign visitors away, he betook himself to attending English and American patients at inland baths in France, Hoya and such like. His wife died young, he died comparatively young, and Mrs. Moorfield, who had been a patient and a grateful patient of his, took charge for a while of his only child. Clelia was thoroughly English in ways and feelings, but she had only once been in England until she had grown up, and that was for a fortnight's holiday in London, which she enjoyed intensely. It was curiously interesting to Jim to talk with this English girl who had been so little in England, and who now, for some reason, hated London. He was always made welcome in the rooms of the Moorfields. He became their escort to all sorts of places. Gertrude leaned to practical science. Clelia decidedly cared and understood more about art. Mrs. Moorfield liked everything that anybody else liked, provided she cared for the anybody else. Jim began to feel warm and cheered and happy again. He was on the way to forget his fickle sweetheart, and he was on the way to forget the mystery of the ring. He had never spoken of the ring to the Moorfields or to Miss Vine. He felt that it was a secret confided by fate to him alone, and that he must not breathe it out to anyone else. He did not feel sure that Gertrude Moorfield would take much interest in it. He thought her the sort of girl who has more concern in promoting the happiness of the general than in sympathising with the distresses of the individual. She would no doubt have thought the woman who threw away the ring a very feeble-minded and pitiable creature. Suppose her lover had proved unworthy of her. What, then? Why should she lament? If she had proved unworthy of him, then indeed she might regret and repent and sorrow. But in any case, was there not the great heart of humanity throbbing and bleeding all around her? 
and how could she conscientiously find time to give herself serious trouble about some ridiculous lover who had proved himself as inconstant and as treacherous as men generally do under all conditions we do not say this was the reasoning of gertrude moorfield or that it would have been if she had known anything concerning the mystery of the ring but this was the way in which jim reasoned that she would reason if he were to try to interest her in the subject and so he did not make any effort to interest her in it so we thus reason about each other's reasoning every day in our lives but miss vine if he could have been tempted into telling his ring story to any one he would have been tempted into telling it to her for hers seemed to him a nature simply overflowing with sympathy out of her eyes came such looks of expressive kindness every story of distress seemed at once to go straight to her heart still jim did not feel free somehow to tell that story and in any case he could only have told it to clelia if he and she were alone and he hardly ever saw her alone except for a chance moment or two when there was not time for the beginning of any story-telling the result of all this was that the question of the ring began to occupy less and less of jim's attention now when he woke at night he thought of clelia and not of the ring her coming had banished the ring from his thoughts she was to him a far more interesting problem there was a strange sort of maturity about her she was a very young woman twenty-two perhaps certainly not more she was actually a little younger than gertrude moorfield so mrs moorfield and gertrude had told him and yet there was a certain tone of command and a suggestion of experience about her the more jim conrad saw of miss vine the more he came to delight in her society he went to the rooms of the moorfields every day and he began to put off indefinitely his return to london for some reason which was not made plain to him the moorfields postponed their choice of a winter residence the real reason in all probability was just that which they professed that they wanted to have all the fine weather they could in paris before starting off anywhere else so jim thought he might as well linger long enough to see them fairly off the premises he was for the moment careless about his future he was in the worst position in which a young man can be placed he had just enough to live on and not enough to prosper on a greater incentive to idleness cannot be devised for the condition of an ordinary mortal so he stayed and he stayed it became more and more clear to him that miss vine was offering him every inducement to stay from her he received the most cordial welcome sometimes he almost fancied that mrs moorfield and gertrude were a little cold to him sometimes mrs moorfield with an air of motherly sympathy asked him why he was wasting so much of his time in paris sometimes gertrude said she supposed they must soon make up their minds to lose him but miss vine never said anything of the kind she always urged him to come again to-morrow our poor youth began to be fairly bewildered 
he might have told himself if he were to judge from externals only that clelia was falling in love with him but he was a modest young man not wholly without experience and somehow he could not think that at all events he did not admit that to his mind she seemed he thought all too frank and friendly and yet there were moments when he caught her eye and might almost have been prevailed upon to think that there was a secret understanding between them and that they stood apart from all the world it began to be a curious position every day he was more and more drawn to miss vine every day she became more and more openly friendly with him every day she more and more urged him to remain in paris and every day mrs morefield gently remonstrated with him for wasting so much of his time and gertrude told him frankly that she wondered how one could be a man and not have something more definite to do in the world all the time he could not see that the moorfields were any the less friendly to him than they had been before he could not doubt their friendship their faces as dr johnson said of the thrales were never turned to him but in kindness and yet they must have seen that he was drawn more and more towards clelia vine what is he asked himself the mystery of clelia vine once he ventured to ask mrs morefield when she and he happened to be alone whether there was not a sad story behind miss vine mrs morefield answered hurriedly yes i believe there is i have no doubt there is but i don't know what it is and i have not asked my daughter knows but she is an unimpeachable friend and she would not tell anyone i dare say she would tell me if i asked her but i have never asked her and you need not ask her for she would never tell you oh i should never think of asking her no it would be of no use she has the most extreme and romantic notions of the obligations of friendship can any one have two extreme notions about that no i suppose not i am sure not mrs morefield answered quietly apparently a little less of the extreme in life would have satisfied her perhaps her daughter was a little too intense for her one thing she said brightening up you may count upon nothing in clelia vine's story will tend to clelia vine's discredit oh of course i knew that jim exclaimed emphatically how did you know it because i know her but you don't know her very well i have eyes and i can see he replied yes she said in a subdued kind of tone almost as with a suppressed sigh you have eyes and you can see her at all events you are quite right in the conclusion you have come to gertrude adores clelia and whatever the story is she knows the whole of it and you have never asked her never why should i i have the most implicit trust in gertrude even in her judgment but she is so young she does not think that young women ought to be treated like children 
and she is a great believer in friendship oh yes of course conrad said somewhat dejectedly he was not very fond perhaps of theories about life and just then miss gertrude herself came into the room and the story of clelia vine and the theories of woman's friendship to woman and man's right to interfere and the independence of daughters and the reserved authority of mothers were put aside for the time conrad left the grand hotel in the early afternoon and sauntered listlessly melancholy slow along the streets not troubling himself to think much of whither he was going puzzled a good deal about this new human interest which seemed to be growing strangely inexplicably up in his heart suddenly he found himself in the rue de la paix and all at once he remembered the talk of his acquaintance mr albert edward waley and the recommendation to go and see the english hair-cutter in the english and american hair-cutting saloon he had noticed the place often in passing along the street but he had never entered it he pulled up now in his walk and thought that that would be a very good time to have his hair and beard touched up a bit neither hair nor beard much needed touching up jim was a tidy sort of man and took good care to keep himself always well groomed but still it was an opportunity so he went in it was an ordinary paris hair-cutting room large and well arranged there were several assistants hanging about not many of them occupied in active duties it was a slack time of the afternoon if it were not conrad would not have cared to go in he only wanted like poor king lear to discourse with his philosopher and philosophic discourse on any expected subject would hardly have been compatible for him with a crowd of listeners so he felt a sort of anticipatory sense of success or good luck when he saw that the chairs were many and the occupants few monsieur one of the attendants asked with courteously inquiring gesture and all the appearance of a bland willingness to gratify every wish of the customer i want someone who knows english well conrad answered with the bluffest british air conrad spoke french very well indeed for an englishman but for the moment it suited him better to suppress his accomplishments in that way pardon monsieur we all speak a little english here we do attend all the english and the american gentlemen and the american gentlemen they do not always speak the french but i want an englishman to whom i can explain things conrad insisted his little game rather interested him he was a successful amateur actor as has already been said we have an englishman here monsieur if monsieur only condescends to put himself to the pain of taking a chair for a few minutes the englishman will be at the service of monsieur almost at once so conrad put himself to the pain of taking a chair and he waited for the english hairdresser meanwhile he studied the room and its occupants to see if he could not find out his fellow-countryman oh yes he knew him in a moment and he knew him chiefly through his silence there were a few hair-cutters and hairdressers working away at their patients if we may so call them 
and they were all chattering cheerily in french or in english as she is spoken all but one and that man was absolutely silent jim devoted the few moments he had of interval to a study of the man's face and manner he had the firm jaw of an englishman even jim would have said of a north country englishman otherwise there was not much english looking about him he had a bald forehead and the thin hair that arrayed itself about his ears was dark almost to blackness he had a heavy moustache and a thick beard clipped square he had long heavy eyelids which usually hid his eyes just as a curtain might have done but when the curtain was raised the dark eyes flashed keenly enough conrad could see and conrad thought he detected in them now and then a sudden upward glance such as a hunted animal might show if he were expecting a pursuer from this side or that the man appeared to be well on in the forties was rather under the middle size but very strongly and squarely built conrad was disposed to pride himself to himself on his new-born and growing power of observation as a novelist in embryo he was pleased to tell himself that he could read the hearts of people although an occasional twinge of the critical conscience reminded him sharply that perhaps he was only reading them all wrong still he felt great interest in watching this particular man the man still worked on in grim and stony silence the chattering frenchmen plied their craft as if they loved it the solemn briton seemed more like an executioner preparing for his dismal work and naturally reluctant to distract from penitent thoughts the minds of his foredoomed victims than like one engaged in ministering to the comfort and the grace of his fellow-creatures conrad had happened on a time of day when it was not likely that many men would be inclined to settle down and have their hair cut or their beards shorn and therefore he soon found himself with very few companions in the place and was quickly under the hands of the english operator monsieur the man asked in what you might call good thick british french accent you are english conrad said speak to me in your own language i am english can't you see conrad adopted this blunt style with a purpose the man who has made a reputation for silence is not likely to be shaken out of his habitual self by long words or eloquence what do you want done the sombre hairdresser asked politely but curtly hair and beard trimmed not too much don't want to be turned into a different man want to remain as i am only better see i see go ahead then the man was evidently a little puzzled but he was not easily put out so he went at once to his work there was silence for a moment look here conrad said suddenly been long in paris twenty years there or thereabouts like it hate it where do you come from london last why didn't you stay there hate london worse than paris much worse what place do you like no place that ever i was in what's the matter climate no don't trouble my head about climate no 
Then what do you trouble your head about? Many things. Conrad thought he had pursued that sort of personal inquiry far enough, and that he had better give the silent man some friendly hint that might make him a little more confident, so he suddenly changed his subject. Ever met a man named Whaley? What Whaley? Well, he gave me his card. Albert Edward Whaley. Yes, I know him. North Country man. Yes, so am I. Thought so. So am I. Yes, I know Mr. Whaley. He's a good sort. He would stand by a man if the man was in trouble. I thought so. Know him well? Oh, no. Met him only two or three times. Liked him. He is staying at the Grand Hotel. I know. So am I. He advised me to come and see you. What do you want to see me for? Don't know. Why did you come? Because he told me. What did he say I could do for you? Tell me things. What things? Didn't say. Anything I wanted to know. What do you want to know? Don't think I want to know anything in particular. And why did you come? Because he told me. The hair-cutting and trimming work being done at that moment, Jim got up from his chair, was duly brushed down, put on his coat, and was preparing to go his way. He considered that his best policy, if he wanted this habitually silent man to talk, was to say as little as possible himself, and not to show the slightest desire for special information. Moreover, he had only come to study the characteristics of a silent hairdresser with a view to the remote possibility of finding some hint for a figure in a novel. So for the day he could not do anything more. "'Good afternoon,' Conrad said. "'Like to talk to you some other time.' "'Call on you at the Grand some night, may I?' the hairdresser asked. "'Delighted. We'll have a smoke. When?' "'Tomorrow night, eleven. We're late here.' "'Tomorrow night, eleven. My card, see?' "'Thanks. My name is Coffin.' "'Coffin?' "'Yes. Why not?' "'Isn't a cheerful name,' Jim said bluntly, still acting his self-assumed part. "'Not much about me is cheerful. Marmaduke Coffin.' "'All right. We defy augury.' See you tomorrow night, Coffin. And so they parted. Jim was infinitely amused by his day's adventure. The name of Marmaduke Coffin completed his delight. It was utterly impossible that a taciturn English haircutter in a Paris shop, who bore the name of Marmaduke Coffin, should not have some food for romance somewhere stowed away in his life. Then all the conditions under which he had sought acquaintance with Marmaduke Coffin seemed auspicious for his purpose. Who on earth was Albert Edward Whaley? Who could his people be who had such an odd idea of making him like the Prince of Wales by tacking on Albert Edward to Whaley for that and no other purpose? And why did it happen that Albert Edward Whaley should have fallen in his, Jim Conrad's, way, and taken to a liking for him? 
why should albert edward waley have spontaneously and with no obvious purpose advised him to go and make acquaintance with marmaduke coffin and who was the lost and all-accomplished pal or chief who were this mystic three jim delightedly told himself that he had come on a very gold-mine of romance if a story did not blossom out of all that then he could not see where a story could come from for a raw beginner could he work the ring in by any artistic process well no he thought not the story of the ring according to his present feelings was not for the public but jim began to think that he bore a charmed life in the matter of romance that he had a sort of divining rod for literary copy only that with the divining rod one knows exactly what he is seeking for jim did not know End of chapter 7